If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. You are enjoying the last remainder of the summer of 2022. Fall arrives tonight after 9. I'm still going to wear white. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Always looking for your last word. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Liz, uh, booking the guests, and, of course, Dan and Dave in the newsroom, keeping us abreast of uh, what is going on. And, man, it's a truly uh, family affair today. Uh, we heard the weekend off the top, and reason being, weekend playing tonight. Is it weekend or the weekend? The weekend. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, playing tonight at, uh, where is he playing? Rogers Center. At the Rogers Center. There you go. And, uh, Alicia, my daughter, and her friend Maddie are down from, uh, school, university to, uh, come to the show. So they'd come in to give us a little bit of, uh, a pre-party, pre-show, uh, sort of, you know, of what is, is going on. So, uh, is this show sold out tonight? Yes. Yeah, the one tonight sold out. The one tomorrow, I think, still has some tickets, but this one's sold out. All right, so tonight is sold out. And uh, what is the big song that The weekend has right now? There's like a million. No, but what's the the hit now? Um... I don't know. Can you sing one? No, I guess that's out of the question. <laughs> no. So, uh. We're just like such big fans that there's no like one good song. Yeah, They're all good. All. Oh, there you go. So, uh, we were having this debate earlier because I thought The weekend sounded like Michael Jackson. And, uh, again, I think the song that we played, which is one of his first big hits, doesn't that sort of say that? And maybe it's not so much, uh, the voice and so on, but the production. It sounds like the 1980s. Don't you think it sounds like Michael Jackson? His album is like meant to be like retro themed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so I guess my era is now sort of retro themed. Is that what you said? It's like the eighties oh, yeah. is retro now. Yeah. because it does sound a lot like the nineteen eighties, doesn't it? Yeah, that, it's that's like the goal of it. All right, yeah. so uh, big show tonight. What time does it start? Six thirty. Six thirty. Yeah. Well, Holy smokes! Oh, yeah. is is there like fourteen opening acts? Who's opening? Like, you know? Uh, no, we have no like we have no, no idea, idea who they are. All right, and uh, and what time will you ladies be home? I want to know that. Oh, maybe that's a fatherly after question hours, I should be asking. Uh, after hours. <laughs> so what are you doing after the show? Can you tell us that? We are going We are going out celebrating our friend's birthday, who is also going to the concert. All right. So it's a full meal deal down yeah, there. Shout out. Happy Joey. birthday, Joey. Happy birthday, Joey. Or as we like to call him around here, Todd. <laughs> that's a whole other question. All right. So let me ask you this, because I know you went to the Justin Bieber show. And it, yeah, and and you showed us some footage of it, and I I thought it was kind of slow. What were your thoughts on the you just? Want my honest opinion. Yes, I did not think it was worth it to go. Really, there you go. Feeling well though. Not an excuse. Wait a second. Job to do. All of a sudden, we got mother piping in from the sidelines, critiquing the show here. Holy smokes, this is great. Where's Kurt? Is Kurt around? Is the dog around? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you think this show will be a much better show than, uh, than the Justin Bieber show? I do agree. I think that The yes. Weeknd cares oh, more about Toronto than Justin Bieber does at this point. Oh, <laughs> that's what and it is. And Drake might be coming. I did hear that. So I heard there might be some special guests. Is it true that Drake might be there or he is coming? Is he going? We don't know. 
Do, do him and Drake have a song? I should yeah, know that. Yeah, and he's playing it. So. <laughs> I, sh- I should have known that. And what is it, The Zone? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, chances are he's going to be there then. Well, we don't know. Yeah. He's pretty big. He's bigger than The weekend, is he not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so on a worldwide level. All right, so sounds good. So uh, please take care of yourself. Uh, travel no. together. Uh, don't be drinking any drinks of somebody that you don't know and all that sort of stuff. Is there any other parental guidance you want to give the mother before they get out of here? Oh, good. All right. Thank you, ladies. Have fun tonight. All right. And maybe tomorrow we'll catch you and get a review of what the show is actually like. Maybe. Maybe. maybe, maybe, We're alive. Maybe. Nice. Thanks, girls. Have fun. Uh, Alicia and Maddie uh, giving us the uh, preview party, uh, which is uh, clearly happening here as they get ready for the weekend show. Uh, Two shows, apparently. There you go. And uh, room at the second one if you want to go. All right. Uh, He's no teenage head, but I'll move on. All right. We got a a jam-packed show covered up, and we hope that you hang around for it. Uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce has released what it's looking for as far as municipal elections and as far as uh, what they feel the city needs in a new leader moving forward. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, the federal government has dedicated funds towards a terrorist analytic tool. I'm going to talk to Carmi Levy about this because many creative ones like the YouTubers and the TikTokers say uh, that this is going to uh, harm content creators. Is there a balance to be found here? Can we somehow figure out uh, which way is up? And also, as as we do get ready for municipal elections and I'm kind of like holding off until October I, you know like let's you know anyway uh, or as long as I can but uh, here's an interesting situation because we're always talking about how we attract people to politics especially younger people to politics uh, in both genders by the way uh, a candidate in the Oakville mayoral race uh, is wanting to become Canada's youngest mayor 19 so, uh, boy, oh boy, you got to give them a, a, an A for effort, <laughs> as my dad used to say. And, and, and it's great the young people are getting engaged in politics. And uh, we're going to talk to him and see uh, what, how, how the bug bit him and why he wants to do it. The Ancaster Fair is on this weekend. So if you're looking for something to do, and man, there is a little bit of uh, a bite of fall in the air today. You can certainly feel it as fall arrives later on today, just after 9 o'clock. Uh, but uh, some may say it arrived at about 9 o'clock this morning uh, when you went outside and uh, opened the windows and saw how cool it was. Uh, great looking day. We got a great show. And if you want to be a part of it, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Hamilton Chamber of Commerce has released its 2022 municipal election priorities. And to talk more about all of this, Greg Dunnett is with us, President Ham- uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and here now. Greg, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and uh, congratulations. I haven't chatted with you on your uh, appointment as president for Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, what's the objective of having a municipal election uh, priorities or a set of? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a great question. Uh, you know, I think um, the importance of it very much so is as we, you know, I don't want to say completely come out of the pandemic, but as we look forward as a city and a, a business community, uh, our municipal new municipal government is going to play a leading role in helping us move forward. So to put those priorities out and put them in, in the hands of every candidate, uh, mayoral and for council seats was uh, really important um, to get that information out and to help them understand what the business community is looking for uh, as they take office. Uh, you know, our team here at, at the chamber, Paul Shakalowicz, our gov- policy and government affairs advisor, did a 
fantastic job of meeting with our membership for a three-week period in August uh, and really got into the core of what our membership was looking for and has kind of created a pathway for our new mayor and council to advance our local economy and, and drive new investment and talent into our city. Uh, you brought up an interesting point, Greg, and that was post and pre-pandemic. What's the difference between, say, the last municipal election or the last set of elections and this one? How have things changed post-pandemic? Well, I think every aspect of life right now, Scott, uh, we're, we're at that crossroads, right, of hmm. coming out and having opportunities for growth, for uh, forward-thinking leadership, and for driving change and not looking at things the same as they were previously. Um, it's a new era of collaboration in our city. And so I think that's, you know, one of two of the priorities we had were leadership and vision. And we think that, you know, there's a, we're going to have a new mayor. We are going to have many new members of council. There are opportunities for them to come in and push forward uh, a new vision and uh, a new, you know, so much areas of growth and, and not just, you know, you look at the city's mandate of this being a best place to raise a child and age successfully, but, you know, at the chamber and, uh, and throughout our membership, they want Hamilton not only to be a great place to, to live, but also a great place to work. And I think there's so much synergy in those two things. Hmm. So let's talk about some of the priorities you're looking for. And this is, you know, not only for mayors, but for council as well. You said leadership and vision. So, uh, and again, you alluded to moving forward, not backwards. What are some of the other priorities? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of them kind of, you know, they do, they do connect with, I think, what you're hearing citizens say in terms of um, housing and affordability, because if you can't afford to live in Hamilton is less likely you're going to work in Hamilton. Um, having access to all different modes of transportation. Um, our business community is, you know, needs uh, greater access to a labor force. They need uh, new skills and new talents as, as they look to grow their business. Um, so how can we work across the community to create talent accelerators to help uh you know, continue to make Hamilton a, a more diversified economy and uh, continue to position ourselves as like, you know, we are really the only urban alternative to Toronto in the GTHA and taking advantage of that and championing that and, and driving new business into our community um, investment. Right. I think, you know, there has been great investment in this city, you know, like at McMaster Innovation Park, but also how do we support some of our legacy businesses and drive climate change. So when you look at those seven priorities, just to make sure I've touched on them all, Scott, you've got leadership and vision, one, two, labor, investment, housing and affordability is another one, transportation, and finally climate change, and those are the seven. And uh, just while I'm saying that, everybody can go to our website or check out our social media channels to get more information and the full reports. And then within each of those seven buckets, there are action items that can help drive that change based on that collaboration we did with our, our membership.
Uh, we certainly hear positive things. We had economic development on uh, a while ago talking about how I think it was Site Magazine or uh, Site Location Magazine, I can't remember the name, uh, where obviously businesses go to locate and such. Uh, once again, Hamilton voted a, uh, a preferred position, uh, a fer- uh, rather preferred location uh, to, to open business and such. So obviously things are going well for Hamilton, especially compared to way, you know, the way it was 10, 20 years ago and such. What are some of the challenges moving forward? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think, you know, you do look at the availability of the labor market and closing some of those skill gaps and ensuring um, those core areas of our city. You can even look at, you know, we're 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 also, you know, we're so involved in the healthcare sector and having enough nurses, uh, new ways, um, you know, just being seen as an easy location to invest in here, Scott. So that when businesses come here, there aren't barriers uh, to access and, and create new business here and removing those barriers so that opportunities that maybe didn't come to us before, those are those are the areas that I, you know, you know, in my new role, and uh, you touched on it off the top, uh, I've been in the role for less than two weeks, but that's what you know, we really want to build collaborative, engaging relationships with our friends at City Hall, with our friends at Economic Development to help help make the pathway forward for every business in Hamilton easier, whether you've, you're starting up your new business or you've been here for 50 years and want to grow and expand your operations. So that's what we're going to work on. And those are some of the challenges we're going to try to remove uh, at the chamber here and, and working with our partners at City Hall. Does the chamber have a favorite or will they be endorsing anybody? Uh, we will not know. I think, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Keenan, uh, was in this role before I mm-hmm. was. And so, uh, I feel like whomever is selected by the citizens of Hamilton, we will work very well with. So. All right, Greg, uh, Greg Dunnett with us, President, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and uh, they have released their two, uh, 2022 municipal election priorities. Going out to everybody, this is what the Chamber hopes for uh, with the next uh, set of municipal leaders. Greg, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate your time, and have a wonderful day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The federal government has dedicated funds towards a terrorist analytic tool that uh, is supposed to trim, uh, trim hate and such from the Internet and slow uh, the spread of uh, information that is not accurate. YouTube, TikTok say that online st- uh, streaming bill will harm content creators. How do you find the balance? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So explain this to us in layperson terms. What exactly is going on here? So what's happening here is there's something called B- Bill C-11, which is uh, it's it's meant to replace and update the Broadcasting Act, which has been around unchanged since 1991. It's supposed to it's sometimes called the online streaming bill, and it's designed to make it relevant and apply all of these rules to the online streaming services, the internet, maybe the platform providers, uh, which of course weren't around in 1991. Uh, and the problem, and it's going through Senate uh, committee hearings right now, and uh, companies like TikTok, YouTube, and others, they are, in fact, uh, testifying to the Senate, essentially saying Bill C-11, as it currently stands, could make it a lot more difficult for you and me, regular Canadians, to uh, find an audience with our content, with what they call user-generated content. If I upload a video, uh, then then these rules are going to make it harder for me to find an audience, harder for me to build 
a business around it if I so choose, um, and essentially make anything that you and I share online subject to government scrutiny. And they're saying let me, we're opening up a Pandora's box. Let me let me interrupt you there. Why is this a problem if you're creating legitimate content? Why would that be a problem? Because right now, if you know, if, if I post something, it's you know, there really isn't any Canadian law that dictates what I share on social media. I mean, obviously, it has to meet Google, Google's, which owns uh, YouTube. Uh, it has to meet their terms of service. And if I post something, obviously, that's violent or of a sexual nature, then I fully expect for it to be taken down. But from a government perspective, government of Canada has no legal or regulatory oversight in terms of what I share on YouTube or TikTok or any other digital platform. Under the new regime, they would. And so if they apply, and, and the bill contains uh, a verbiage, that specifies Canadian content regulations, they could then dictate that, mm, you know, that video that Carmi shared or that song that Carmi's band uploaded, well, then guess what? It doesn't apply. It doesn't meet Canadian content regulations. Therefore, we want the algorithm to dial it down so it's harder to find an audience. So suddenly I went from the world is my oyster and I can share whatever I want on any platform and find my audience within and outside of Canada to, well, now the government of Canada is going to reach in and tell us what we can and cannot share and whether, in fact, it finds an audience or not, which is if we thought George Orwell's 1984 was scary, this is even worse. Uh, but again, and, and excuse my ignorance, but if your song that Carmi has in his band has created is not offensive in any way, will it still suppress that? Yes, because it, this isn't about what is acceptable or offensive or anywhere in between. It's whether it meets, in this case, what, what the uh, platform uh, owners are complaining about is the government wants to have rules for Canadian content. In other words, mm. they want to promote Canadian content, which, you know, in the days of television and radio, and, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, that was a thing. Um, and that allowed uh, some Canadian uh, artists to, to sort of find their audience when access to these platforms was fairly limited. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have the Internet. You couldn't sort of create your own digital empire from your home studio. You kind of relied on radio stations and television stations and such. Well, that's no longer the case here. So the so it, it, Internet access allows anyone, if you're a band and you want to put a song on, and, uh, you know, so even if it is a legitimate song and it doesn't have any swear words in it, if the, if the government dictates that mm, it doesn't qualify as Canadian content because you haven't jumped through enough hoops to convince mm. the platform that you are, in right. fact, Canadian, guess what? Now the algorithm will dial you down. You will not find your audience. And they also worry that uh, that because it's only, this only happens in Canada, it's only proposed here, that if Canada imposes this, that other countries will follow suit. It'll be harder for Canadian acts to find an audience, a digital audience, outside of Canada as well, because pretty soon everyone's going to be punishing Canada for doing really what the free and open Internet was really never designed to do. So how do you find the balance here? And I know that's a million-dollar question, because obviously we've talked about this before, uh, traditional media regulated, uh, the Internet, it's a free-for-all. Um, many have find, you know, have said the, the, you know, finding the center would be good, but how do you do that? So do you, do you regulate this or not? Well, I think you, you regulate the Internet because, of course, we, none of us wants uh, the Internet to be used to, for example, propagate terrorism or to yeah. uh, engage in, you know, to, to find, you know, for, for predators to find child victims uh, or for human trafficking. We all want better regulation that allows governments and law enforcement agencies ways to curb these, you know, to obviously terrible behaviors. 
But insofar as Canadian content is concerned, I think that ship has already sailed. We needed Canadian content rules back in the, the days of radio and television only, pre-internet. Mm. Do we really need them in the age of the internet? I don't think so. And I think that it really begs the question, should the government be regulating user-generated content, or are there limited resources better leveraged elsewhere? And I would argue that they, they, it would be the latter. They are better leveraged elsewhere. Leave Canadians alone if they want to you know, share their own stuff and it's legal and it doesn't it's not it's not being used to commit a crime or anything like that then it should not be subject to the CRTC deciding uh, whether that song that your teenage kids garage band came up with qualifies as Canadian content that to me smacks of government overreach and it's an absolute waste of the resources that we're paying for I want to hear York band uh, Carmi not the kids but anyway uh, <laughs> oh, no, so, <laughs> don't. so this is less about um, stopping bad people and what you're talking about is regulating Canadian content yep exactly um, and you know there is that separate there is the, the terrorist content analytics platform that the government is funding that will allow signatures to be identified on terrorist content and that information to then be shared with uh, law enforcement agencies both within Canada and beyond it's a United Nations program other countries are participating in it we oh, we want to be part of that that's why we're putting our money where our mouth is we're putting 1.9 million dollars toward this program and we're going to actively participate in it because it helps remove terrorist content from the digital space no matter where it exists inside Canada or beyond i think all of us would argue that's a really good thing. Government of Canada, good job on you for recognizing that we've got to contribute to helping clean up the digital space. But also, you know, cleaning up the digital space does not mean infringing on the rights of Canadians to, you know, go out and share stuff that, you know, they created in, in a garage or in a band or in, in some creative realm. And even if they don't want to follow in a professional path, uh, it's not up to the CRTC to decide how that, you know, what, what that qualifies. We're not terrorists. We just want to find an audience. We want the government to leave us alone. And it's interesting, too, because with, and I've talked to people who are in uh, production, TV production and such, streaming production, that usually the crews are uh, a multicultural from all over the world contributing to this project. So how do you define Canadian content now, now that it's not, you know, recorded in a studio uh, in the 1960s and 70s? It's a really good question because you're absolutely right. We live in a world where those traditional barriers and borders no longer exist. And so, yeah. you know, you know, you can collaborate on something on a piece of work, whether it's written or whether it's music or video or whatever, uh, around the world. And how do you define yeah. that? We don't even have those rules in place. It's really time for the government to get real and really ask them themselves the question, does this legislation make Canadians' lives better, or does, just does it put additional regulatory pressure on their shoulders? And I think the answer is obvious. It's the latter. Uh, the weekend playing in Toronto tonight sold out. I don't think Canadian content is needed to help him with his career. I think we've nope, made it. No, it, no it, problem there, but what about it, the next of the weekend? <laughs> yep, that's, that's true. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist with us. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. So great being here, Scott. You as well. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, Jack Kukalik, a candidate in the Oakville mayor's race, aiming to be the youngest mayor in Canada. We always talk about bringing uh, new people into politics. How do we do it? How do we encourage it? Uh, a teenager has figured it all out, and Jack is with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Hope you're doing well. Uh, first of all, how did you get so interested in politics? You're 19. Or okay, tell us a bit about yourself first. How old you are and your education, what you're doing? 
Absolutely. So I'm 19 years old and I'm currently in the mayoral race here in Oakville. Um, I'm a full-time uh, second-year student in Sheridan's Bachelor of Film and TV program over there. Um, and uh, I've always had an interest uh, in politics. I got started at a pretty young age. I started when I was 11. So what drew you to politics? Um, I think it was just being able to make a difference in people's lives, being able to shape your communities, and especially at the municipal level, uh, you're kind of uh, you're kind of really able to be on the ground interacting with people. And when I saw that only thirty seven percent of eligible Oakville voters voted in the last election, um, I figured I'd give people another option and a chance to have their voice heard. What about other people your age? Do they have the same, uh, obviously not the same interest that you do because you're running, they're not. Mm -hmm. But do you find that others your age have that same passion you do? Absolutely. And not only have I known people that have been passionate about it, but I've met a lot of people who now that they've seen me running and they've seen me involved, that they've taken an interest in it and what's happening in their town. And there are uh, young people. I just got off the phone with a with a young uh, lady in Toronto who's the same age as me, and she is uh, running for counselor over there. And there's another girl running uh, for school board trustee over in Burlington. So there are young people involved and passionate and they're ready to make a difference. Okay, so um, school board's one thing, counselor's one thing, you're going right for the mayor's chair. How come? I felt like it was the best way to kind of just make a difference, give people another option and uh, just have just get my name out there and, and show people that young people can make a difference. And there's not necessarily a formula or steps you have to take. You just have to put your name in and try. So uh, what has been the biggest challenge so far for you, Jack? Um, I mean, for me, honestly, it's been uh, with a campaign, uh, you have to cut, you have to reach people. And it's been difficult reaching people in person because there's so many doors to knock on um, here in this in this growing town. Um, so I've relied a lot on social media to kind of help me spread the word and allow me to answer as many people's questions and everything like that. Um, and there's definitely a, there's definitely some people that that just think I'm too young. And obviously, they're entitled to their opinion. But um, I just help you know try to uh, try to explain like what what I'm trying to do and 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 just make a difference and that's all what is what is the response I don't know if you've gone door knocking yet mm-hmm. but what is the response when you when you talk to people and they say hey you know I'm Jack Kukalik and I'm mm-hmm. I'm running for mayor there's always there's always a little bit of surprise but most people take it very well and they like to see a young person getting involved and 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 they most people are, are have a very positive reaction about it what about the family? What do they say? They're, 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 they've been a great support. Uh, my mom is a media copywriter by trade, so she's been helping me a little bit with the communication side of things. And uh, yeah. they've been very supportive in, in, uh, in helping me through this process. Uh, and what about uh, future? Where, where do you see this going? I mean, is, do you one day dream to be prime minister? Where, where do you want to go? I absolutely want to continue in politics in the future. I don't know where I'll actually end up at what level of government, but as long as I'm involved in politics and helping make a difference um, in all of our communities, I'll be happy with myself. So what is the big challenge for you in this campaign? Obviously, is it your youth? Is it getting your name out there? Because, you know, obviously incumbents uh, are are the favorites many times. What is the big challenge you have getting through this campaign? Um, for me, yeah, definitely age is a factor. Um, like I said before, some people, um, some people just see that as the line that they draw and they, you know, they don't want to vote for someone so young, but, uh, definitely another factor, um, factor would just be the finances as well. Cause campaigns can obviously be very expensive. Signs alone are a big, uh, 
are a big mm. cost. So that's been a factor as well, but I'm working through it and, and hopefully I'll, I'll have some signs up uh, later this week. And uh, along with my, uh, my platform, I'm hoping to get out, to uh, get out this week. Um, and I've, I've, I've been, uh, I've been reaching a lot of people through, through my website. I have a survey on there where people uh, from Oakville can kind of just share a little bit about what they're thinking, what they're feeling. So I've, I've kind of built my platform a little bit off that as well. So uh, no platform yet, but what are some of your priorities? Uh, transit's definitely a big one in Oakville. Uh, it's been a sore spot for a long time. And, uh, you know, for the people, for, for anyone that relies on it, you know, you, you want transit to be affordable. You want it to be reliable. And I'm just trying to improve it, um, improve it overall. They've been talking about electrification uh, for years, kind of introducing electric buses into the mix, but it hasn't happened. So that would definitely be a priority as well. Um, housing is a big issue in Oakville and it's, it's not one with a simple, uh, one step answer. Uh, but I definitely want to look to building strong communities and communities that people want to live in and, and just have Oakville, uh, have Oakville grow with all of us. So do you, uh, have any advice for others who may think they'd like to get into politics? I, I would tell anyone to just kind of get out there and start working. You know, you can always start, you can always start um, with campaigning uh, with another politician. That's another kind of one of the ways I, I started and uh, not for this election because it's uh, it's almost time, but um, mm-hmm. I would encourage people to um, become a poll worker and kind of work in that sense as well, because then you can kind of get an idea of the election process and what kind of goes on behind the scenes with the vote. And it's another great way. And I did that for a few elections as well. Jack Kukalik with us, Oakville mayoral candidate, 19 years of age. Jack, congratulations. Good luck to you. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a good day. All right, we're going to do uh, an issue which uh, is pretty controversial, and uh, I'll be honest, I've shied away from it, uh, especially when my when my teenager brought it to my attention uh, pretty much about the first day of school. Um, and I'll read you the headline from the Toronto Star in a portion of their column. Uh, Oakville teacher's controversial attire prompts Halton District School Board to review its dress code. The first few paragraphs read, The controversial classroom attire of a transgender teacher, which has created a local global and media storm and flooded the inboxes of the Halton District School Board staff and trustees has prompted a review of the board's dress code. For the past several days, as photos of the Oakville Trafalgar High School tech teacher wearing overly large prosthetic breasts went viral, the board stood by its position of recognizing, quote, the rights of students, staff, parents, guardians, and community members to equitable treatment without discrimination based on gender identity, uh, based on gender identity and gender expression. Uh, at a September 21 meeting, however, the Halton District School Board trustees voted to request Director of Education Curtis Ennis to return to the board before the end of November with a report addressing the various considerations regarding dress codes and a motion that carried unanimously. Uh, in the... Um Rex Murphy's column in the National Post, quote, a classroom is no place for wearing massive prosthetic breasts. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, it was just not long ago we're talking about the York Regional School Board and them refusing to even acknowledge, teach, show images, play music, anything uh, to do with Queen Elizabeth's funeral. They quickly did a 180 on that. I guess because it's a historical educational event. And now we have this. What are your thoughts? Wow. Um, you know, Scott, when I first heard, I, you know, this is a very sort of like double D kind of problem. 
nobody really wants to touch this one for fear of absolutely saying the wrong thing. When my father- my son came my son came to me for has come yeah. to me for, for several times on this and I didn't believe him and he actually got angry at me for not believing him and I said it's got it you know blah 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 doctored what have you and now it is where it is so we have to address it do we not I think we do I think that there's two sides to this story I think that the fact that the this person has come out as transgender is the non-entity of this story I think that we have are, are becoming more used to that in our society at least as some people are and I don't think that that's that, that's the issue I think what the issue is, is the, the absolute size of the breast and they were sort of sort of making a bit of a mockery of the sexualization of women um you know who have large breasts like you know it's interesting scott you know young girls have been sort of shamed at school for wearing Mm -hmm. their shorts are too short or their crop tops are a bit too croppy or they don't like the fact that their um yoga pants are a bit too tight or Mm -hmm. what if a, a bra strap is showing so we've had all this this sort of like penalization of young girls who are going to school dressed and we are putting some sort of other lens on how they should dress and, you know, the uh, ostensibly, you know, um, the young males in the school would not be able to control themselves, you know, when they see a young girl walking mm-hmm. by in yoga pants. And, and, and of course, we know that not necessarily to be true. So I think that what this does is that sort of makes, you know, um, this teacher's uh, over-dramatization of breasts sort of makes a mockery of the point of, you know, how sexual do you have to be in order to be overly sexual? And I think that that's really the issue here. There's a lot of people saying, listen, you can't go into shop class with really big boobs and uh, and operate machinery. Okay, well, I think that if you walked it through some factories around this province and there you would see well-endowed mm, yep. uh, women and maybe men with large tummies who also operate heavy-duty machinery. Yes. Yep. So I think that there's an interesting point here to be made. I mean, I, I don't really, it all, it all falls under the category of appropriateness, Scott. But I think that what are we really talking about here? That we don't like the fact that she has large breasts, that we think it gets in the way of her teaching, or we as a society just can't accept the way this teacher looks. And that I don't is think- really hard, 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 hard line to come down on. I don't think it's about a person in transition. I think it's about professional respectability in attire at the workplace, whether it's a a tight rear end skirt or a tight rear end or a tight top, which shows your prosthetic boobs and nipples. It's still, if it was another teacher or a student, I don't, I think we'd be having a different discussion. Oh, we definitely would have been in that. And that student would have been suspended. That student would have been sent home. And um, perhaps that teacher would have been sent home. But uh, again, still, where, I, mean, uh, I, I mean, did the teacher show up on day two with this? I mean, there apparently there were six kids in the class. And then, you know, this has been going on. For, this this has been going on for a while <laughs> because my son has been telling us it's been going on since the first day. So, uh, I, again, we get back to at what point. Like the school board clearly did not get out ahead of this. Clearly, as the York Region Board didn't. Uh, again, I go back to how do you think this is not going to draw attention to itself? Much like not teaching the Queen's funeral. I mean, it amazes me that 
you know, where where is this going? What's the plan here? I don't think we've heard from the teacher side, have we? I mean, I've, I've no. looked at the reports and there hasn't been anything in the past 24 hours uh, since this was actually widely reported on. And so I'd like to be I'd like to know about the teacher side of this other than just showing up um you know in this attire and in this way of bodily self-expression i would like to know what their side is to be quite honest because it would be interesting to know because the school board doesn't know what to say because the teachers aren't really giving them a narrative of why they are showing up in that way so from a communication standpoint scott it's like you know do you talk about appropriateness well you know that excludes all all sorts of other kids you know you know what about kids that are that are transitioning yeah what does that say about what they wear i i think that we're missing the other half again here yes we we certainly are but i don't think this is about as transitioning as much as it is acceptable behavior and attire in a professional setting in a classroom and i would like to know what the and i agree I agree with that. Um, however, I would still like to know what the teacher's yeah. narrative or yeah. side about this is. And I yeah. think that that Good would point. be really helpful um, in, in determining. So if this is appropriate, why do you think so? And that would be interesting to hear. But offering silence and, ju- and, and nothing else, I don't think is appropriate. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, It was amazing. It was this long ago. I think it was October of 2019. The cannabis became legalized in Canada. And then we remember when the distribution started, it sort of became a piecemeal thing across the country with different uh, provinces doing different things. Uh, And here it is, however uh, many years later, now we're having a review. This was supposed to be done uh, a year ago, but obviously with COVID-19, there's bigger fish to fry here. Uh, but where are we now? And we're certainly just earlier this week heard about uh, businesses that are going under and companies that had stock that was once quite high now uh, just worth a few bucks. Let's bring in Brad Polos, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Brad, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. So uh, obviously, this is a study that was uh, that they're going to do a review right now. They're going to do that was uh, already in the plan after a, uh, a three years of this. What is the objective? What are they looking for here? Um, what sort of answers? It's really quite a broad uh, review that's going to take place. Uh, by the way, let me correct you. Uh, uh, cannabis was legalized in uh, October of 2018. So it's uh, coming up on the fourth anniversary. Of it. Oh, okay. I said I thought I said 2018. At least that's what I had written down. I, I, I think you fi- said 2019. But anyway, okay, it's I'm been sorry. almost four years. Yeah, uh, yeah. They were supposed to do a review after three, and and as you mentioned, I guess they you know they were distracted a year ago. So so here we are, and uh, they're going to look at a, just a really broad range of things. So so uh, first of all, how effective has the new policy been at? Um, Achieving that the the two overarching goals, they had about eight or ten when they legalized cannabis, but there were two that kind of trumped everything. Uh, one was, uh, can we um, either reduce or, well, reduce, we're not going to eliminate <laughs> the use of cannabis among youth. Um, and then the other one is to reduce or eliminate the participation of the criminal element in the cannabis industry. So it'll be through that lens, but there's going to be several sort of facets to this review. So they're going to look at um, things like um, the potency limits. 
because right now I think we have a big problem, especially in the medical regime. They're just they're not allowing these cannabis companies to make products that are strong enough for many medical users. So they they put in a position of having to take more than one dose, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine you know having to down ten Tylenols to to achieve the the stated goal there. Um, they're going to look at the safe, whether or not the, the industry is providing safe cannabis. So is it, um, you know, are there, are, is there adulteration? Are there chemicals in there that ought not to be? Um, they're also going to, they're going to, for some reason, they're going to review the home grow, which I think if they touch that, they're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback from certainly, you know, the cannabis enthusiasts in the country. Um, and they haven't said it. But because they're gathering input from both the industry and consumers among a whole bunch of other groups, they're going to have to look at this taxation issue, especially in medical cannabis. So they haven't said they're reviewing it, but they're going to have to be forced to review it. We're, uh, we're taxing one medicine in Canada right now, and that's cannabis, and that, that just needs to stop. Uh, the other thing that they're going to look at is relaxing. I can't imagine them getting stricter, so relaxing the rules around uh, marketing and packaging and all of that sort of stuff. Because that what that's doing is preventing the Canadian cannabis companies from establishing potentially global brands while that is happening south of the border. And we're, we really waste an opportunity, I think, if we don't relax these regulations around marketing and allow some of these companies that you were mentioning are in danger of going bankrupt uh, to establish you know, a, a proper brand identity. Uh, Brad, the first two you mentioned was reduced usage among young and the black market. How has it performed, in your opinion, uh, on those fronts? Yeah, unlike in Colorado and and Washington, which is where we gathered a lot of our information prior to legalization, it looks like cannabis use among youth may have ticked up a tiny bit. There was a study done a little while ago that that suggested that. But I don't think we're going to see that there was a you know, a really marked increase in cannabis use among youth. And as I, as I implied but didn't say, in Ca- Colorado and Washington, it actually went down after they legalized cannabis, uh, possibly because of, um, the, the, you know, the lack – because it's not illegal, there's, there's less of a mm. – I can't think of the word I want, but it's just not as cool. Uh, but the other thing is it may just be harder to get because now you have to go through – um, legal markets, although the illicit ones, of course, still exist. On the criminal side, uh, the legal market has gathered about 50% of the overall market. So there's 50% that's not going through the criminal, you know, through organized crime. Uh, but but the, the cannabis industry still exists. Uh, the illicit cannabis industry still exists and is thriving. As I said, they've got 50% of the business still. So I think there's still a fair bit of work to be done there. What about the number of locations? We've heard somebody say out of Toronto that there was more uh, cannabis stores than Tim Hortons. Uh, yes. I'm not sure that'll happen in Hamilton. I'd love to see our stats. But anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, yeah. What about what about the amount? And, 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 and you know, you're talking about how uh, in other jurisdictions usage actually went down. If you've got a saturated market, how can that be? Well, as I, as I mentioned, it's probably not what we're going to find here. We may find that it's kind of flat or maybe a small uptick among 
uh, usage among youth. But let's remember that a youth can't walk into a cannabis store and buy yeah. cannabis. So, so there's that. As to the number of stores, uh, that's a provincial thing. So that's really not part of this review. Um, the, the feds, where they kind of touch is they regulate all of the production. So whether that be cannabis flour or the products that we derive from that, so things like hashish, but also beverages and, um, and, and edibles and, you know, all of that. So, so all of that is totally controlled by the, by the feds or regulated by the feds. And they also regulate advertising, um, so that's what I was implying with respect to, you know, building brands and all the rest of it. But distribution is left up to the provinces. So it's really not part of this review. How will do you think this uh, how do you think this industry is going to change in the next year or two? We're going to continue to see consolidation. We've been seeing it already, and that consolidation exists in a couple of ways. So one is companies go bankrupt and their assets get purchased uh, or um, they just go out of business uh, or the company get, you know, gets bought up by one of the bigger, more well-financed players. And this is not unexpected. Uh, there was a massive kind of gold rush, you know, lots of people uh, and, and institutional investors jumping into mm -hmm. this industry and providing all kinds of capital, which got deployed. And it just the industry got just way overbuilt, both on the production side and also on distribution at the retail level. How much do governments make from this now that it's it's ongoing? Now that we've had a couple of years under our belt, it's um, it's it's around a billion dollars at, at last sort of count. It's uh, not a not a meaningless number, and that's only taxation. That doesn't count all the all the retail markups. Uh, sorry, not retail markups, the wholesale markups, because in twelve of the thirteen jurisdictions in Canada, the the province or territory is the actual wholesale distributor, and of course they they attack on fifteen to twenty percent um, when they pass it on from the producer to the retailer. Brad Polos with his instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, Canada's government doing a review of the cannabis law and, and where we are at this point. Brad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Sure. Anytime, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. And, you know, I found this a alarming stat, and I hope we don't get comfortable with this. And that is that uh, renting is going up. Home ownership is declining. And what that means is the, you know, the people who are hoping to get a home and save up and and have what is the dream they can't do because it's just the down payments everything is just too too expensive and more and more are looking at renting but the, what people are forgetting is that when you rent uh your money is going basically to the landlord when you buy your rent money is going to yourself and it is I would say one of the biggest, if not the biggest, ways of attaining personal wealth. Let's bring in Don Fox, Executive Financial Consultant, Fox Group, uh, with IG Private Wealth Management. And you can hear us plan your financial future every morning, Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And Don is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. No problem, Scott. Yes. And yourself? So far, so good. If I get that damn dog to shut up. But anyway, yes, I, yes, I was wondering, uh, <laughs> did you, is it dinner time? <laughs> 
Yeah, something like that. Anyway, uh, I found this, I found this discouraging because again, we all know, and you've talked about this as well as, uh, on planning your financial future, that when you invest in something like a home, you are building your personal wealth. What are your thoughts when you hear renting is outpacing home ownership? You know, and it is alarming at first if that's just the headline, which it was, by the way. But then when you dig a little deeper, it was more the younger side. So, Overall, from 2011 to 2021, it dropped from 69% to two-thirds, which is 66 and 0.6%. So about a 2.4% decline of home ownership. And so that's not massive. And where it was big, though, is the 25 to 29-year-olds went from 44% to 36% in that same 10-year spot. And the 30 to 34-year-olds went from 59% to 52%. So that's where all of it is really concentrated on, which probably brought all the averages down that two and a half percent. So basically, you know, what happened during that uh, decade? House prices went up a lot and it, and it really squeezed the younger buyers out of the market. How do you get ahead of this? And I'm sure you get asked that question a million times. Like how, if you're, you know, and again, if you've owned a home, then, you know, you're off and running. Uh, at least you're in the game. But making that first step seems impossible. It's harder. And, you know, that's also why, you know, especially when you saw the housing prices go up about 50% in two years. Well, it was like you're chasing this rising market. Now, that has certainly turned around now with a drop in prices. And, you know, Hamilton's probably down about 20% from its peak. And so you're starting to see that uh, now the payments are higher because interest rates are higher. So it's, you know, a catch 22. Uh, you know what? People are living at home a little longer trying to save parents are helping out there there is ways to get a house and maybe you know condos are another option starting smaller and then working away or even renting out a basement and having that help with the payments of a uh, of a mortgage how in the end is this affecting people's personal wealth when they're coming out the other end at retirement yeah that's a that's a good question it you know you know going back to what you said yes it's a great way to help personal wealth home ownership but it's not the only way but the one nice thing about owning a home, it forces you to put a mortgage payment every month. And so yeah. what you're going to do is you're going to forego maybe going out on a Saturday night because, you, hey, you have a mortgage payment to make. And so it, it takes into account that most people are not that self-disciplined when it comes to money and nothing better than a big giant debt to make sure people make their payments so that, because they don't want to get kicked out of their house. So hmm. that's really the biggest reason it works so well is a forced savings. Now, if you're renting or could you could you simply make that payment into an investment every month because the rent payments are usually less than a mortgage payment when i say that i'm taking mortgage payment plus property pl- taxes plus you know yeah. uh, you know repairs etc that's where it's tricky as long as you can actually invest that difference you could do extremely well as a renter but that's hypothetical but again most people aren't yeah. that disciplined and unfortunately, we're seeing rents go up too. But yeah, if you can take the money, the difference between the rent and owning and put that money away to work for you and have that discipline, obviously, you're going to get ahead with that. We remember the days of 18 plus, 18% plus interest rates and people losing houses and all sorts of stuff. Is there hope for the kids, do you think? I think there is. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was speaking with my daughter about this uh, just about a week ago. And everybody gets caught up in the monthly payment because that's all, you know, really 
I would suggest the banks really and really even the marketing is all about what can you afford per month. And I personally would rather see people have a far lesser debt and a higher interest rate than a massive mortgage and a lower interest rate. Because what we're going to find out when these five-year mortgages come due in 2023 and 2024 and 2025, when they used to have a, you know, a two to two and a half percent mortgage rate and possibly they could be renewing at you know five five and a half percent it it literally could be kicking some of these people out of their homes because of such a large debt so and and again if you ever get a windfall could and you also got an inheritance for say a half a million dollars you could pay off a half a million dollar mortgage but if you own a million dollar mortgage you're only paying off half that debt so people start Good concentrating point. on the payment and they're not concentrating on the debt Good point. Don Fox with us, Executive Financial Consultant, the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. You can listen to us uh, every Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Good talking with you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know what has been happening with the Russian war, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, UN summit this week in New York City, uh, usually a variety of topics on the agenda. However, with the Russian increased aggression in Ukraine, it has been the main topic of discussion to talk more about all of this. Dr. Jane Bolden with us, professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College of Canada, and with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. I hope you're you're well. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. So obviously, uh, the world getting together in New York, uh, I guess the Queen's funeral prior to that, uh, and having an informal uh, chinwag when when possible. And now all of a sudden, we hear that uh, President or sorry, uh, yeah, uh, President Putin is ramping things up and looking for another 300,000 troops to join uh, the ranks. Is it just a coincidence, the timing of all of this? Well, I think the um, coincidence, there is a coincidence in timing in the sense that this is happening while all these major meetings are happening, the Queen's funeral, the United Nations. But it's not a coincidence in the sense that this follows um, some significant Ukrainian advancements in the northeast Mm. of the country, pushing Russian troops back. Uh, that being said, many thought this would be over very, very quickly. That has not been the case. Uh, how does Putin present this to his people and justify the new troops? Yes, that's where the difficulty lies for him, um, because it is hard to mobilize 300,000 troops and not get the attention of the domestic population which had until now been pretty low key about the um, about the Ukrainian war. So what we start to see is that, um, for example, Sergei Lavrov, who was at the United Nations, spoke briefly to the Security Council. He came in, said what he wanted to say and left, didn't bother to listen to the other speeches. They are trying to portray this as um, a fight for the motherland, that Russia being the motherland, that Russian citizens are being mistreated in these regions and that this is all about defending Russia and Russian values and Russian territory. And that's his way, Putin's way, of trying to ensure that the narrative is going to be attractive to the domestic population. Uh, That being said, uh, we're certainly hearing more and more about people resisting that, protests in the streets, uh, also mass amounts of people leaving the country, which, you know, up until just a few weeks ago, whenever I would ask experts this question, they said, for the most part, Russians supported Putin. Right. 
Right. But that's um, why you, the reason you see this shifting is precisely the scale, 300,000, and the sense that this could only be the beginning. Um, there's a fear that the mobilization is the first step in what might become a wider mobilization, or if not a wider mobilization, something that's going to be much longer term. As you mentioned earlier, people thought this would be over fairly quickly and or that it would dissolve into a small scale ongoing struggle, probably of the kind that we saw before Russia invaded in the east of that area. And so Russian population, Russian citizens are now beginning to think this might be bigger and longer than anticipated. And it's the younger population, that's distinct from the older population, which depends heavily on the state-run media. The younger population is the are the ones who are on social media, talking to each other, looking at world news. And they're the ones who are most likely to be implicated in this kind of mobilization. And so that's why we see that what feels like a sudden shift. I would argue it's not necessarily a sudden shift, but the because the younger population has been tracking this for a while. Mm. But these shifts have activated them. Ukraine President Zelensky addressing the UN the other day and in quite a powerful speech uh, in English, the impact that that has. Um, and will he see his wish to see Putin punished for the various war crimes? That's a d- difficult um, call. I think, yes, Zelensky is always a very powerful speaker. Um, the Ukrainian cause is very compelling. A lot of the statements we've seen yesterday and today reference the um, the point that this could be any of us as member states of the United Nations, right? Mm-hmm. The whole goal of the United Nations is to prevent exactly this, a bigger state being able to take over a smaller state just because it's bigger. So he has a lot of um, capacity to mobilize, but accountability which has also been a theme of the last couple of days in the speeches from leaders, that's a very tough thing to achieve at the international level. And it's particularly tough with a leader like Putin. It's not impossible, but it'll be difficult. So uh, at least with something like this, does it rally support for the allies? Do they get more ammo? Uh, Because as this aggression, I mean, success for Ukraine continues, does this not back Putin into a corner? Are we scared at what happens when we corner the rat? That is a concern. Um, He you don't mobilize 300,000 reservists if you're winning. So um, it's pretty clear Putin views this situation as one um, on which he's on the losing side. And that is the unknown for everybody is how he will deal with that and how if it becomes not just on the losing side in a broad general long term sense, but backed into a corner, um, there is a level of uncertainty about what he might do. And he's made those kinds of threats, particularly about nuclear weapons. Um, So far, it really does look like they're only threats. Um, So it's hard to judge. I think it's unlikely we would, you know, he doesn't gain anything by a nuclear strike. Let's put it like that. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. unlikely we're going to go down that road. But it doesn't mean he won't try other things um, in order to avoid some kind of loss. He needs to be able to come out of this and say he's a winner. 
And boy, what will that be? Who knows? How what do you package like? How could you package this as a win? Uh, one more quick question. I've only got about 30 seconds left. Lot, uh, there, I've heard some chatter about Putin's health. Do we know anything about his health? Sick. Some of you mentioned cancer. Do we know any of that? Is that just rumors flying around? So far, it seems to be rumors, but from people I've talked to, it's persistent enough rumors. It's right since the beginning of the war that kind of chatter has been in play. It's consistent enough that there may be something to it. But, you know, what if we've been almost six months now and it hasn't gone beyond rumor and speculation. So hard to know. Dr. Jane Bolden with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College, UN Summit, and, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Jane, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You as well. Talking about uh, just last segment about the UN and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how things have changed, and all of a sudden now Russia trying to mobilize another 300,000 reservists, basically a draft, which they haven't done since World War Two, uh, you got to think how that's going to fly in Russia. Well, they're leaving in some cases, people crowding the borders, trying to get out, booking flights to get out, uh, others uh, protesting. To talk more about all of this and where it's going, have we hit a tipping point? Ronald Sonny with us, professor of history, political science, University of Michigan. He's a former researcher at the National Research University in St. Petersburg, Russia, and is with us now. Ronald, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Uh, Ronald, you know, we talked a few weeks with experts about this, and for the most part, Russian citizens pretty much supported Putin. It didn't seem, even with sanctions, that they were being phased by any of this. It seems to be there's a turning point now with uh, Putin asking for another 300,000 uh, reservists to, to join this fight. What is the sense within the citizenry of Russia? The polls show that 75% of Russians support the war, but you cannot take those statistics seriously. What the scuttlebutt and the social media and various other indicators show is that people are largely indifferent to the war. They want it to go away. They're looking the other, other direction. And this is quite a blow to them. That is, Putin made a strategic decision that they'd fight what they call the special uh, 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 military operation without mobilizing the population. Now, because of the victories of the Ukrainians and uh, the perceived vulnerabilities of the Russian forces, Putin has made a very big tactical choice. That is, that now they're going to try to mobilize 300,000 people. This is not popular in Russia. Uh, does this mean to Russians that Russia is losing? That would be almost going too far because uh, I think what Putin indicated yesterday and when he spoke about this was that he felt that Russian immediate national interests were being threatened. That is, the war has been, been in different ways to the population. First, there were Nazis in Kiev, and this was like the war of uh, World War II where we're going to liberate our brethren nation from fascist uh, occupation or something like that. Then there were uh, claims that we would liberate the Donbass or just those areas of, of Ukraine which were closest to Russia. And now it's a new uh, level, uh, which, which uh, in one sense really reveals this as an imperial colonial war that is taking over the areas closest to Russia and also even annexing them. Uh, so how the population reacts to do they think Russia is losing? Well, they're not doing well, 
and there's more and more protests, and body bags are coming home. So there's that perception. But at the same time, uh, people are, are not paying the kind of attention to the war that might lead to real resistance. Well, that was that was my next question, Ronald, is that um, it seems that they're buying into a point, has this changed it for them, and all of a sudden this will make them look for more information, look to outside sources to what's going on. Uh, one more time, please. I'm just wondering, with this realization, will Russians then look for other information, look to other avenues to try to find information as opposed to just buying into everything Putin says? You know, Russians are so used to being misled by the uh, by the mass media. There are those, and it's almost a generational thing. There's an older generation that buys mm. into what's said, and then there's a younger generation which is on social media, which has... VPN connections, which uh, talks to each other, and they have a different view. So you almost have two Russias there. And one of those Russias, sadly, is already emigrating. So a lot of the tech people, a lot of younger people, some scholars, people I know well, have left the country. Uh, And the older generation, which is much more dedicated to the war and willing to follow Putin rather blindly, they're they're still there. But it's those people those parents who are receiving the news of what's actually happening, of the bodies returning to the villages and towns of Russia. And this is not going to go well for Russia. Uh, They have a lot of reserves. Russia is a great big state. Uh, It's got nuclear weapons. It's unlikely to allow itself to lose this war. So what we're in for at the moment is a protracted war of attrition until one one side or the other decides we ought to compromise, we ought to look for an armistice, we need a ceasefire, let's sit down and negotiate. I don't see that in the short run, but it's probably the best thing we can hope for at the moment. Will a key aspect of this being losing the support of Russian people? I mean, you know, the information is what it is. There's propaganda there. But when you see Russians leaving, flights being booked, and borders being crammed, I mean, there it is. It's hard to say. Uh, you have a country, Russia, at the moment, which is so dominated by a single news source, that is the mass media, which is largely controlled by, by Putin, that resistance to that, to trying to do something different, to, to learn the real news, is really a difficult thing. It's not like anything like Canada or the United States. You have a variety of, of different media. Uh, but it's interesting. People do resist. People do find ways to find out what they need to know. Some, as I said before, look the other way, largely indifferent. They wish it would all go away. But it's hard to change reality. It's hard to buck the way things really are. You could say reality has a nasty habit of biting back, and it'll get Mm. you right in the place where you least expect it. And in some ways, this war is coming home to Russia. And people are learning about it. And how they'll react, will they become more patriotic, more resistant to, to uh, uh, those who are against the war? Or will they begin to defect in a way? Remember, uh, in my country, in the United States, how long it took people to finally come to terms and say the war in Vietnam was not worth it. Or the hmm. war in Iraq uh, was not worth it. It took a really long time. Do you think this is a turning point with him asking for 300,000 troops, especially when they haven't done this since World War II? 
I think it's a turning point, but I wouldn't exaggerate how big a turning point it is. I think that if he um, gets away with this, and he's obviously going to get away with it in the short run, uh, it'll become a, a part of the normal scene. Uh, the people who are being uh, conscripted, not conscripted, but, but uh, mobilized at the moment are reservists. So there are people who have been in the Army. They may be older folks. Uh, they can be uh, brought together and, and given arms, a little bit of training, and go to war. They're not, they're very carefully not conscripting, let's say, students right. uh, or mm-hmm. people who, who are, are, might, in fact, resist. What do you see happening in the short term here, Ronald? I wish I could say in the short term things were going to get better. My own reading, everything I've noticed, uh, is that this is going to be a long, protracted war, a war of attrition. Ukraine was very successful in the last few weeks. And because of those successes, it's in a way got the bit within its, uh, between its teeth, and it's talking about victory. Uh, and they even have talked a little bit about liberating Crimea. That seems a really distant goal that's really impossible to achieve. Uh, as the war escalates, and it's been escalating, the United States has helped escalate it. Uh, there's no talk about armistice, no talk about ceasefire. There's all this loose talk about victory. As it goes on that way, uh, Russia will simply escalate as well. So we are, we are in what you might call a spiral, an upward spiral of violence that I don't see a way out of in the short term. Ronald Sonny with us, professor of history and political science, University of Michigan, former researcher at the National Research University, St. Petersburg, Russia. Ronald, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your spectator, and he's coming up after the 6 o'clock news tonight. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, and I've got a question for you tonight. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, how, do you? Does your family feel own... free to do this? Feel free to do this anytime. All this right. can be does, your does break. Your you can ask the, me the question. Does your family own the giant boxes of photo albums from years past? Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And do you ever we pull them a, out? We got a shelf downstairs full of them. Um, you know what we did do very recently? And that is my daughter, who's 20, said, did you have a video camera? And it's like, we've, of course, like we got the kid's birth almost on video. So uh, we grabbed it one time and started just even looking at the one that was in it, which was the one we used last. It was like 10 years ago. And that was hilarious to watch that video. See, because I'm in the process right now for the last number of days not to be moros but we've got a uh, my my mom passed away about a month ago we've got a celebration yes. of her life and my dad's life who mm-hmm. died a year ago and we couldn't do anything so we're doing a celebration of their lives on the weekend and i'm putting together a slideshow so all the photo albums have come out yeah and it's great to have them but you know what i'm realizing everybody now all their photos are simply on their phone yes that you never once you get past about five yep. screens in you're never going to, there's no place where anyone is ever going to keep these. And, and, yeah. and usually there's five versions now, of the same thing. There's like five versions of the same right. thing. And so thir- like when, when, when you pass away or I pass away, hopefully in 30 or 40 or 50 years, 60, if we're lucky, who knows, um, <laughs> is anybody going to be able to find photos of us? Cause they will have all cycled out. They'd be in a cloud That's somewhere. Right. They'll be in a phone somewhere. No, it's impossible. It's, it's entirely and, unless you different. pay the, 
unless you pay the fee to whoever it is you pay to uh, Apple or whatever to store them, no, you're you're out of luck. You know what I did do one time, and, and this made you, your your situation and what you're dealing with, and of course our condolences, Scott. Um, is a, a while ago, and this was before my parents passed away. I snuck into their house and I stole the big shoebox of Super Eight movies. Do you remember the Super Eight oh, ones? Yeah. You used oh, to actually yeah. load, put the film on the thing, and put up oh, the screen. Yeah. And I and I got them converted to disc. <laughs> To, to a DVD and gave it to all the members of my family and they loved it. It was a great it was a great thing. So if when you do this, you can somehow record that and give a copy to members of your family, I bet you they'd go through the roof on that. Oh, so they would have sure, a copy of your just, presentation. It's just the funny thing that I was thinking as I was doing this, that in years yeah. to come, someone who's in my position trying to do this for someone else. Yeah. Won't know where to even begin to look. Well, you have to, to get everybody else. You'll have to get everybody else to send you their photos. Send me any pictures of mom and dad you got. Yeah, but then like, so I was. How, able, where do they again, yeah. I, I think a lot of people are in the same position I have because millions of people have done the same thing, whether it's for a wedding or anything else. You can go through the book and find funny ones and find good ones, as opposed to saying, "Okay, send me five pictures," and they send you what right. they want and. I just, as I say, it's a changing time that we now have more yeah. photos than ever before. People take pictures of all their meals pretty much. Yes. And yet <laughs> when it comes time to gather them somewhere down the road, where are they going to be? Do you remember slides? Are you doing slides? Oh, I have slides. I didn't, you know what? I didn't go into slides because I thought. Yeah, my parents weren't into slides. Oh, we've got them. Oh, we've got, we've got, we got super eight. We've got slides. We've got DVDs. We've got photos. I, I, I reduced it to say, I'm just going to pull from the album and scan yeah. those pictures in because, you know, like if I start getting into the slides, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm yeah. happy to put in the effort for this. I really don't want this though, to take up 24 hours a day for weeks, Yes, uh, yes. which it could have, yeah. which it could have, but no, it's, it's a, it is a weird changing thing that that photo album thing that everybody had boxes of them now, no, not so much. And here's what happens. And again, same thing is what you're going through. Uh, you know, the house is gone, cleaning it all up. Everybody's departed, passed away. What do you do with those bazillion boxes that your parents had? Who wants them? Who like do the kids? Do one of the kids take them? Do you divide no. them up? What do you do and, with them? Do you take everybody? <laughs> no, not no, in my house. We, because Leave them they out don't. There. They don't, Scott. And I know that the stuff that my wife and I have in the basement that we have whittled down to a few boxes, <laughs> even then when we go, the kids are going, to, what do we do with this stuff? Yeah. The, yeah. the reality is somehow it's got to be okay to say we're throwing this out and it's not yeah. us throwing out the memories. It's just, I yes. don't need dad's trophy from when he was nine years old playing hockey. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, one interesting thing from a friend, um, uh, his mother had several dogs over the course of her life and she would have them cremated oh, and no. then <laughs> put them into a little jar. So she had like a little spice rack in her room of all of the dogs that she had. <laughs> and he felt that he had to take it on the wife's. No, we don't want the rema remains of the old dog over the past 40 years so yeah out, out went the puppies thank goodness that that with person the spice did, rack yeah th thank goodness that person though did that as opposed to taxidermy what do you do if you've got a taxidermied <laughs> old pet you can't put that at the curb uh, you're looking for a museum all right uh we're out of time and this continues on the scott radley show coming up after the six o'clock news scott as always thanks for the time be well thanks scott
You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator, too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Liz and Will for producing, Diane and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to provide the last word. A caller called in who wished to remain anonymous and said if a trans male teacher had a huge prosthetic penis packer beneath his jeans, would the media and school response be the same? What would the conversation be then? I don't want to know.